0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyugin, coming at you here with our 53rd episode right after Thanksgiving. Hope everybody had a grateful, thankful, you know, prayer-filled celebration with their family. Check out the Ether Hour episode where we go into a bit of fun, cozy Orthodox Thanksgiving lore. But we're back covering the Third World War, as we always are, every week we know no one else brings you the information like this. So strap in, we're here to bring you the week's news. And there's some crazy stuff. The Houthis taking Israeli ships in the Red Sea, Ireland rising up saying no more immigrants were full. Uh, Ceasefires have finally been reached at some level in the Gaza Strip. So we're going to be covering that, talking about some big election victories and all sorts of other stuff. Dimitri, how are you doing?
1: Doing good, Conrad. And I guess uh, just off the bat, we can speak about finally a success. Humanitarian aid has begun to Blood into Gaza, and you know, including fuel, medication, food, things like that. And this has been sanctioned by the Security Council of the United Nations. So really, Israel really has no ground to stand on here. And frankly, this resolution was backed very heavily by BRICS countries, which much to their you know, much to their emphasis have been uh, of course on the pro-Palestinian side this entire time. Uh, what's interesting to note is just the fact that. The fact that the U.S. actually again vetoed a resolution for a ceasefire, which you know the U.N. has been attempting to push, it's not like the U.N. has been uh, you know against the ceasefire, which Israel has deemed you know completely unacceptable. They said Israel said no ceasefires will be allowed, but the U.S. has once again vetoed a ceasefire resolution, which was forwarded by Russia. Nine countries, funny enough, out of the sixteen. On the United Nations Security Council, have abstained from voting again, even against it. But those countries include the UK and France, much to their great shame. But you know, claiming to be civilized European countries voting, not voting, but abstaining, uh, sort of claiming neutrality against the against the ceasefire. And this took place in Malta this week. So a p- pretty good uh, conclusion, I think, um, to the week in terms of actually providing the Palestinians who are still on the siege and casualties continue to mount. So um, generally, the, the casualties at this point towards the end of November um, following Thanksgiving are reaching the 15,000 mark on the Palestinian side with over 5,500 children been confirmed to have been killed by the Israeli Defense Force, and uh, their subordinate uh, troops are in bombardment, things like that. It's just completely horrible, right? These numbers are staggering, and they put to shame some of the numbers uh, on the, from the Russo-Ukrainian War and some of the claims around the Butcher massacre, things like that, all these large stories which they kept, you know, kept getting exaggerated over the news for the last year and a half. So uh, the Palestinians are suffering. And meanwhile, the Israeli losses have actually been audited, and they have been reduced from 1,400 to 1,200. So again, um, an interesting comparison there, where Palestinians continue to die for, for what cause exactly? Besides actually trying to live independently in their own in their own particular territory, which you know they've lived in for hundreds of years at this point, and Israel continues to surround Gaza in this like pythonic, snake-like, you know, and this is a reference to the tribe of Dan. They're constricting being Gaza city is being constricted. They're pushing in with Merkava tanks. Um, I guess the positive news on this end would be that Hamas have actually claimed over 350 Israeli Merkava tanks to have been destroyed at this point, and troop carriers as well. So 350 is a very large number, considering. I mean, that's Putin claimed that in one month Russia destroyed over 600 Ukrainian tanks, which came from all all around Europe as well as America. So 350 by just the, you know. The quite small force of Hamas I mean that's those are impressive losses if they are true, impressive losses for israel and, and naturally you know the numbers aren't being reported by the Israeli defense force, but perhaps. Perhaps there is some truth to, it. again, Netanyahu's position in Israel, as we mentioned last week, remains very shaky. There is a lot of opposition internally. There are no protests at this point, but there are considerations to have Netanyahu probably removed. And I think those conspiracies are still ongoing within Israel itself. So the conflict, of course, rages on and the losses continue to mount, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get into all of that and some of the details around this hostage exchange and this Qatar mediated ceasefire. But before we dive into that, I wanna make sure everybody prays for Derek Chauvin. He's been stabbed in prison. We're maybe gonna go a bit into an analysis. I may have to go off later in the episode if y'all can handle that. I may have to I may have to let people know what's up, because this one's this one's pissing me off. But first people said he was dead, and now, you know, this mid-episode we seem to be a bit fog of war, but it seems he may survive. So pray for Derek Chauvin. And, yeah, as far as Israel goes, this is one of those stories, the galaxy leader being taken, this huge ship by the Houthis, taken in the Red Sea. This is one of those stories that happens right after we post World War Now, you know, from the previous week. I think it happened on the 19th, so we're still in the spectrum of coverage here, if you're listening to this on a Sunday. But... It was crazy. This footage, you know, people thought when they heard the news that this was some Somali pirate-level thing, but sure, while it sounds like that, this was a full-on military operation with a modern helicopter and, you know, modern weapons. They hoisted the Yemen and Palestinian flags over the ship, took the 52-member crew hostage, and, you know, they've now taken them back to Yemen. And, you know, as of today, uh, the Yemeni commander, the Yemeni naval commander... The head of the Houthi Navy has, you know, visited the ship and told the crew that, you know, Yemen is their home. They'll bring them whatever they want. You know, they're treating them well, I guess. But they refuse to give the ship back to the, you know, Chabad-connected uh, Israeli billionaire that owns it, the 21st richest man in Israel, Rami Ungar. And he has close, close ties to the Israeli security establishment. He's a member of the board of Israel's leading security think tank, the Institute for National Security Studies. And he's donated, you know, millions and millions of shekels for the construction of Mossad head Yassi Cohen's synagogue opposite to his home. And apparently this is a controversial thing in Israel. So this guy's a big, you know, Mossad, Israeli establishment Zionist. And that's why the Houthis, you know, even though there was all this commotion, like, it was flying a Bahamas flag, it's a Japanese company. You know, the Houthis did their research, they found that this guy is the real, you know, financier behind this ship, and they took matters into their own hands. So there was some pretty crazy stuff, I mean... Again, we talk about this a lot on the show. You know, Dimitri, you said, you know, those number of Merkava tanks, these are like guys in jeans doing this. So that's why, you know, those stuff. If you've seen the videos of, you know, Hamas footage, these guys are wearing Levi's and, you know, Old Navy. So it's uh, it's it's pretty wild that they're able to achieve those kinds of numbers.
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's somewhat of a funny analogy, right? So you have the Houthis, essentially this ragtag group of traditionalists, like Islamic religious traditionalists, taking back. Fighting against a ship, which is you know like a leviathan, sort of floating through the sea, and it's owned, right? It's flying a Bahamas flag. The ship is apparently owned by Japan or or Britain, and behind all of that stands what stands Israeli (laughs) Habad (laughs) money, and the and the crew is made up of essentially you have people from what what may only be referred to second world third world countries. You have Ukrainians, Mexicans, Filipinos, Bulgarians, um, just people from all around the world. It's essentially this globalist vessel. Um, which is trading capitalist goods, which is funded by Jewish finances and the Houthi is like this traditionalist religious folks that have taken matters into their own hands and as you said have done the research. They've Googled at the right places, they visited the 4chan forums and they've taken matters into their own hands. And in fact, they, they know how to discern what is a true what is a true commercial vehicle belonging to the Japanese people and what is one belonging to the global to the global cabals. So I think it's uh I mean it's quite powerful given that the Houthi is right a small country. It's not even essentially it's almost like a hezbollah right running yemen at this point that's like a very it's not even a completely state state controlled resistance force and in fact they're still putting up uh putting up a real effort against the israeli dominated uh middle eastern politics at this point and so naturally will we see the united states navy move south into the red sea towards yemenese territory i mean that aircraft carrier for example floating around the the israeli egyptian border i mean like potentially there could be a large, um, a large escalation, or maybe even as we've said, just expect uh, all kinds of red flag type provocations and f- false flags, right? From, from potential, uh, you know, seeking perhaps an escalation in the Middle East. You know, uh, some of these aircraft carriers, they they carry not just aircraft but crews of over 3,000 Americans at 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 one point. So if one of them does go down, there will be tremendous losses. I think, which nobody really wants. But who knows what the globalists have planned? for the poor american sailors who are actually sent into these hot zones around the world to push globalist uh, the globalist agenda further into the future i think it's um yeah it's a very interesting story from the middle east at this point
0: well you know i've made jokes in the past about how i don't want to die on a ship from a directed russian and a directed energy weapon in the bosphorus straits it turns out that just you know i was pretty close i just needed to say in the in the red sea from a houthi missile you know i i just got my little euphemisms mixed up but I mean as far as the Houthis being ragtag goes I mean they're less ragtag than Hamas like I said Hamas is in jeans and they've got AKs and their missiles don't do much whereas Houthi ha- Houthis have missiles that can go thousands of kilometers deliver major ordnance, and they're in full-on uniform you know they've got a head of their navy they've got a full-on operating state they control you know one of the largest population groups in Yemen but they're just going off and they they've just decided to kind of embrace this spirit. I mean, look, I'm not endorsing exactly any of these actions per se. Again, these are Muslim nationalist, you know, groups, but, you know, these young men, these are like 18, 19, 20 year olds, you know, they're storming ships, they're, you know, fighting for a cause that they believe in, like this is energy that, you know, is being pushed in a certain direction. And I don't see people and young people of that regard fighting for the West's ideology with that same fortitude. And I think that's, that's multipolarity in a lot of ways for you there, especially in a returning-to-civilization type of way. But unless you have anything else to say about the Houthi galaxy leader situation, Dimitri, you said that the U.S. may be going in. That's because the U.S. did just say that they are willing to attack the Houthis if they don't let the galaxy leadership go. I think galaxy leader is just so funny. It's like Jewish space lasers or something. It's just, why is it called galaxy leader? It's just, it's just so funny. But yeah, the U.S. seems willing to you know, go in for this Israeli billionaire guy. You know, he's the 21st man in Israel, I guess. Once you top the top 20, once you get into the top 25 richest men in Israel, the U.S. government and military and navy work for you. I guess that's the, uh, I guess that's what that's that's the tier list of subscription-based American politics that we're in today. But I guess that's only I guess that subscription tier is only open to a certain tribe of people but we see in the good news front in this war and everything we see that a humanitarian truce in the gaza strip will begin friday 7 a.m so that's you know this time this is being recorded uh, november 24th this is from the qatari foreign ministry i don't know if the israelis have been honoring this even in this moment i think we got to wait for some reports the wi-fi issues are going to make reporting on this exact ceasefire difficult but dimitri what are your thoughts on this development
1: yeah i think as long as they can uh, the people in Palestine can get the hospitals running again to at least some percentage of former capacity, right? To where they can actually get fuel and perhaps to even fuel these uh, electricity stations and get coal into into that one um, station of electricity, which has been shut down for quite some time now, over a month. I think it'll be very vital to the you know, just the health and well-being of the local Palestinian peoples who have, you know, suffered under this particular regime. Um, I just wanted to mention so the fact
0: could that... just get you know, Dax and Hinkle to, like, you know, unload his Twitter feed. Yeah, he could unload his, his opinions, power. right they, they, they could, could they could power they'd have coal for years
1: well uh, perhaps even uranium i mean this is some, some powerful fuel you know jackson hinkle <laughs> has been spitting recently on online and you know we're, we're not just uh, against jackson hinkle's opinions i think him pushing communism on mainstream media and hiding on, on behind the orthodox cross well yeah i think that's almost like part of a globalist agenda in and of itself which we can probably dedicate an entire episode to breaking that down which we probably will in the future if he continues these shenanigans right sort of masking behind masking himself as an orthodox christian while pushing Marxism, I mean, that's completely degenerate. But nevertheless, like moving on, uh, there are some globalist leaders these days that are like keeping the door somewhat open, right? We have the new British Foreign Secretary, which if, if anybody hasn't checked the news, if you recall, the former Prime Minister of the UK, Lord David Cameron, he's been promoted to Lord by the King and has now mm. resumed his you know resumed his place in British politics as the new Foreign Minister. He has openly stated that killing of Palestinians that we're seeing today is completely unacceptable, and he's really given himself this uh, kind of humanitarian air, considering. This is the man responsible for Britain's participation in NATO, which took down the entire country of Libya and Gaddafi and caused essentially one of the largest humanitarian crises we've seen in the last decade, right, in Libya, or even... Past a decade, I would say in the last twenty years. So Cameron, again, a very long-time globalist, probably a Freemason, and again a graduate of a graduate of Oxford University. So definitely, he has all of those connections. And you know, him painting himself as a pro-Palestinian is is a little bit interesting, but it does show that the globalists are keeping the door open. And uh, even our old friend Joe Biden, right, the uh, the Irish American, has stated that the Gaza and West, West Bank should be united under one Palestinian authority after the conflict is over, and you know, the region will be governed fairly by the Palestinian authority, not by Hamas. So Joe Biden kind of towing the line on both sides, saying, look, Palestine should have its own government, but it shouldn't be Hamas. So he's kind of keeping his foot in the door in terms of what will take place after perhaps Netanyahu will be removed from power, because Netanyahu's position still remains. He wants the complete eradication of Hamas, but he also wants the release of all Israeli prisoners, which is probably why this prisoner exchange is currently taking place. The funniest, I mean, the funniest story I think that I saw was uh, an Israeli um, press secretary uh, was questioned by a for foreign journalists so the press secretary announced that 150 Palestinian prisoners will be exchanged with 50 Israeli captors right so so and the press secretary straight away pressured him and said why are you you know this is not a fair trade you know you should be releasing more Palestinians for 50 Israelis even though it's you know a three times difference so again and he he was just shocked he didn't, he didn't even respond to the journalist so uh, Israeli politicians are completely out of their depth they can see the pressure mounting from around the or you know around the world of 2 billion Muslims in the world are essentially opposing Israel so strongly that i think most journalist outlets be they liberal be they you know communist right wing are all opposing israeli uh, what israel is doing in gaza and i think the israeli state simply hasn't caught up yet to this particular opinion and you know i think the christians around the world are going to turn more and more against israel and i'm not talking about the evangelicals but the recent news about the church in lebanon has really caught us off guard and reminded us of you know, just how how Christians are very much right on the receiving end of this. Uh, St.
0: George's in Lebanon, that's an Orthodox church. That was a Orthodox church that, yeah, the Israelis appear to have bombed indiscriminately. They're obviously just hitting the whole southern region of Lebanon because that's all Hezbollah territory. But this just drives the point home. Like, There's a practicing, worshiping, orthodox church in a quote-unquote, you know, Muslim extremist Hezbollah territory. But what destroys it? An Israeli bomb. So, again, for this, you know, the the Israelis, it's they're the Western civilization versus you know the Islamic hordes that do nothing but hate us. Again, you know us here on the show. We've had whole episodes dedicated to crapping on Islam. When it comes to Russia, we're very much against the whole Muslim immigration thing and the, you know, elevation to Islam to the same status as orthodoxy and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, let's just be real here. Like, when it comes to Islam versus Talmudism, there is an older enemy, I guess we could say. You know, one of them, you know, has been an enemy for longer because it's just older and is, was there at the beginning, as they say. So I think this, that, that story really, really demonstrates that. So pray for the Christians in Lebanon, of course. They are really just caught in between two, a rock and a hard place. You know, it's really tough for them. That's why there's such a huge Lebanese Christian diaspora in places like Brazil and America in canada and other places so be sure to pray for st george orthodox church be sure to pray for just the lebanese people and to pray for peace in the region of course we're seeing the ceasefire is good and we're seeing these hostages be exchanged and of course this is the first kind of development in that regard that we're seeing and i think qatar despite being maligned more than almost any other country besides iran in the midst of this conflict, in the Western media, proves that you know it's this. It's going to come from the more multipolar world. The reasonable takes on this, the Western media, the Western take is, you know, Israel's wagging that tail on that dog. So you can't expect a reasonable, unbiased perspective there. Yeah, that's right. And I like that you mentioned just the fact that you know
1: we don't necessarily uh, we don't necessarily speak about pro-islamic policies around the world in terms of that being a good thing i think the recent story in ireland uh, you know of, of a muslim immigrant from africa actually speaks volumes about just the fact that look islamic immigration right and whether it be uh, whether it be in europe russia or anywhere else around the world is are continuing to be an issue and not just immigration, but also, uh, you know, refugees coming into these countries or alleged refugees, people under a refugee status, which continue to cause havoc in some of these local um, non-Muslim majority countries. I think what we saw in Ireland, the riots this week at the end of November have kind of again shown us that the European people are beginning to wake up. The beginning to wake up to the mass immigration. If you'd like, you can call it a replacement of the local population by the politicians in power. And whether or not the Muslims themselves are, you know, and by Muslims, I'm collectively assuming North Africans, people from the Middle East and Central Asia as well, whether or not they're aware of what they're doing or whether or not they're aware of who exactly is pushing these strategies of economic refugee type migration into these, I guess, developed first world, former Christian majority countries such as Ireland, Germany, Russia, things like that. Whether or not the actual Muslims are aware of this, it really does not matter because they they are the golems in this particular experiment. But they are summoned by another force, which is most likely, you know, those belonging to some of these religious cults we speak about that you mentioned earlier. Perhaps uh, Talmudic in nature, and perhaps even liberal local politicians who have ruled over Ireland for quite some time now, over two decades, and have forced some incredibly liberal policies. Like I'll mention, uh, I'll mention some l- later on in a bit. But Ireland itself, again, it's, it's suffering under this combination of foreign immigration as well as local liberal politicians keeping the country in this essentially this cabal so it's quite an interesting development seeing the irish people finally rise up and after so many years of essentially remaining dormant and kind of ignoring things that are happening taking place in their local communities
0: you know the irish have really risen up and this of course comes in the midst of that terrible tragedy you mentioned where an algerian Immigrant on November 23rd stabbed five people in Dublin three of them being children and of course he was apprehended by a local hero Warren Donahoe He uh, ran over and broke it up dragged him away and then some Brazilian guy came over and started hitting him with a bike So it couldn't it could have been worse and this guy hopefully gets you know what he deserves and worse in prison unlike unlike Derek Chauvin, I hope this guy faces you know much worse But I think, you know, the story really hits home. The Irish are already some of the most national, even from the left, they're nationalistic. You know, they're proud of their language. They're proud of their resistance to the United Kingdom and all of those sorts of things. Obviously, Irish republicanism is very strong across the political spectrum in Ireland. But at this point, the public opinion is very strongly against the increase of immigration and the acceptance of these asylum seekers. It's like 75% of Irish people are done with taking in more immigrants and think they should take less but of course the left-wing quote-unquote nationalist government in ireland just continues to ship in more people while trying to pass basically the most draconian hate speech legislation we've ever seen and i mean to express the level of this i mean this is the kind of thing where they'll be reading like what's already on you can't even have like things they consider racists like saved on your computer because they'll think that you're potentially going to broadcast it i mean this is This is like minority report level stuff. And of course, Elon Musk was weighing in on this, talking about how he thinks the Irish prime minister hates the Irish people. And this is in response to both mass migration and this. So Elon Musk, I mean, again, you know, it's true. And someone who doesn't believe in space says that Elon Musk is your guy. Because, I mean, that's me right now. You know, so it's uh, he's really coming out of the bulwark for for the Volk, you know, for the for the people. So it's uh, it's really heartening to see the richest man in the world. You know, be a strong white man who's not, a, not afraid to say it. It's really, it's, really, it's really boosting my morale, you know, as a, as a seed of Albion myself. But I think uh, we've seen in the midst of this, though, people like Conor McGregor. You know, I mean, this guy is one of the most famous people in the world, and he's just come out hard. And not only has he come out hard against these immigrants and in favor of mass deportations and in favor of getting Ireland and its borders under control, He's, like, totally inoculated against all the woke nonsense. He's, like, other MMA players are trying to come out and disavow him, and he's, like, totally destroying them, like, just completely ratioing them, like, don't tell me about, you know, this, that, or the other. Like, do you have kids? Like, what have your what's happened to your family? Like, he, he, he's done with the justifications. You know, he's done with the hand wringing. You know, it's it's all about how evil white people are the moment someone does something bad, the moment Derek Chauvin witnesses an overdose. But suddenly, an immigrant randomly stabs children, and we just can't talk about the immigrants. Like, it's it's obscene. And, you know, I think enough people with some sense are finally, have finally had enough. And, of course, Conor McGregor gave Warren Donahoe, the Irish hero that stopped the stabbing. He's given him lifelong free drinks in his pub in Dublin. So at least something good came out of all of this. But Keith Woods has been really blowing up. You know, when the Irish, in the midst of all of this, because the Irish thing is going big. I mean, this is—you know—the white people finally showed that we can go BLM mode. And look, sure, it was the Irish that did it first, and of course, people—I'm sure the Irish being white jokes are going to come in the comments. But you know, I'm saying it on the show: the Irish are my white brothers, however different they may be. And you know, they're—they're—they're they're, they're finally starting to uh, to say enough is enough. And I think the energy that we saw that burned down multiple double-decker buses. And attempted to burn down an entire hotel that was housing immigrants shows that, you know, this energy is here to stay. And, you know, Ireland isn't the biggest people, isn't the biggest country in Europe. And they do have a huge diaspora. But I think, you know, the more and more of these countries like Hungary, like Russia, like Ireland, like, you know, maybe Spain, as more and more of these countries eventually, you know, start to resist, one of the movements of resistance is really going to be the model. And, you know, we haven't necessarily seen it yet, but... It it seems very clear that the white people have just kind of had enough, and at a certain level, they're going to get pushed too far. And we saw a little bit of that last night. And obviously, don't go to any of these riots, don't, you know, cause violence, don't fight the police or anything like that. It's not productive. But considering how much media suppression exists of any kind of talking about immigration, honestly, it's pretty clear that this was a long time coming, and this was a real rage expressed that couldn't be contained anymore by media or government censorship
1: yeah and of course this this rage extends i think across all of irish society and it doesn't just touch on immigration i think people will eventually realize that this society has been poisoned by liberal laws and not just liberal immigration policies but also 2015 ireland had the destructive the first gay marriage referendum actually took place in ireland of all countries and gay marriage was legalized in 2015 of course the super liberal abortion laws came into effect in 2019 ireland has been on a slope and now of course you know As you mentioned, they're introducing introducing hate speech laws. So the entire country has been on this particular slope towards degeneracy. And it's not just the country itself, but the people... Actually, in charge of it, running running the ship, and who the local populace I think are slowly going to wake up, wake up against. I think it's a huge move forward, and naturally, like all of these, as you said, right wing countries around the world are starting to wake up and starting to actually elect politicians who will actually look 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 for family interests, look for and family interests, nuclear family interests. They're actually they extend to more than just being uh, you know anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, anti you know. Uh, LGBT propaganda in schools, but also to anti-immigration, because you don't want these people endangering your children, such as this Algerian fellow who stabbed some children outside of a school, You know, definitely mentally deranged. But having these liberal immigration policies had to put your local pe- people in danger. So I think this is just common sense immigration policy, which is being called for here by Conor McGregor and these other figures. Conor McGregor being one of the most verbose and sort of outspoken athletes, I would say, in the world, probably um, even more, like 10 times more than people like LeBron James and people like Brady, things like that. So he's definitely one of the more popular a- athletes and probably the most popular Irishman of the 21st century at this point, you can say. So um, it's good that he's on the side of, I guess, the conservative right wing in this particular debate. And hopefully Ireland is uh, kind of goes the way of many of these other right-wing countries around europe and actually begins to push back on not just the liberal immigration policies but all the other policies degenerating to local culture and destroying their people
0: yeah i think obviously this is a good sign of course we don't want to see any of these children getting stabbed like this is it's sad that these are the sort of things that need to happen for people to just make sensible policy changes but as we see you know the irish national party has almost no representation because the quote-unquote nationalists that are there, you know, always claim to be Ireland first, and they're counter-signaling against, you know, England, and they, obviously they're very pro-Palestinian in that same kind of anti-GAE energy, kind anti-GAE cause, but like you said Dimitri, they've been pummeling down this path of liberalism, and they've been speed-running, legalizing abortion, gay marriage, all of this stuff, and clearly you know, that has brought some curses home for them, and they are going to be uh, you know, they're they're clearly facing a sort of reckoning here, and I mean this really just does relate to the situation in America with like Derek Chauvin and everything and we're seeing what was effectively a state assassination of somebody that was, you know, sacrificed at the altar of of diversity and this, you know, this worship of of the other, this worship of non-whites and this kind of extreme anti-white, you know, ideology stemming out of stemming out of the Borg. But I think in the same way that these these children in Ireland, you know, were, you know, they were killed and they were, you know, People have been talking about this. You know, Ireland is not, they can't even use the Ireland as a nation of immigrants argument. Ireland is a nation of Irish people that have been there for a really long time. And this idea that we just need to ship in thousands of foreigners for no reason is absurd. And just like that, we're seeing Derek Chauvin, who the toxicology reports show it was an overdose. There was no neck issues that actually caused him to stop breathing. There was a later toxicology report because a celebrity, famous person got brought in to do a fake one and basically throw open the whole case to a murder investigation that has now possibly killed an innocent man. And I don't know why he was even in a situation where he was around other prisoners. This is one of the most high-profile, racially charged cases in American history. And this guy's, what, in general population getting stabbed randomly? Like, this is absurd. And this comes right after the Supreme Court refused to hear his appeal despite the fact that there's been extensive evidence even after his conviction that George Floyd had lethal doses of fentanyl in his system among a myriad of other obvious pieces of evidence that he was simply obeying police training like what he was doing was literally explicitly shown in images in the Minneapolis police training handbook like this is just again I'm thinking that he's going to survive it seems to be that's what the reports are showing but if he, if he does survive and he doesn't immediately get a fast-track appeal and frankly, just an immediate dismissal, I mean, I think people should should really start to make their voices heard and peacefully take to the streets.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think populism, populist uprisings, and you know, essentially, ri- I wouldn't say rioting necessarily, but, but legally protesting against some of these events which take place inside your society, such as the Irish are doing, such as the Americans did on January 6th, which as we saw anything that went sort of out of bounds of civility was mostly provoked by FBI agents and even the state guards at the at the congressional building so i think Actually, protesting what has happened to Derek Chauvin. If we see that around America following this these news that came out this morning, I think that'll most likely build towards uh, some sort of some sort of again racial slash white American class consciousness around the United States, where people are just you know fed up with being fed this idea that Amer- the American legal system can be trusted to bring resolutions around when, as we've seen in the last few criminal trials, at least the very loud ones such as the uh, the one around Jeffrey Epstein in 2019 or even the trial around uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, which was completely shut down and where, you know, a lot of the evidence wasn't publicized. It was confidentiality and redactions. And we never even came to the end of the largest pedophile trial in the United States. Uh, the public received nothing from it. We have no news about what has taken place. And now Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd trial, again, just showing us that, you know, despite all these appeals to international law, even domestically, the US has a long way to go in terms of actually running a legal system. And I guess this is kind of a shout out to some of the recent articles, uh, some of the future articles we'll be releasing about the loudest late imperial Russian trial that'll be taking uh that will be released where me myself and conrad we are currently translating a book that was published in 1914 actually translating it into the english language for the first time in i think in in history and it covers the case of uh Bay- uh, Baylis uh, took place in Kiev. It's a very interesting trial. I don't think we're going to spoil anything, but we'll be releasing the next few chapters, I think, before the end of the year. So, And the entire book will be published quite soon, I think. It'll be an interesting book, which you'll find very similar to some of the uh, controversial trials which took place in the US. But that's kind of a shout out and a little bit off subject. But speaking of populism, Conrad, right? And there's just populism in the US. I think a country which has benefited from our populism, or as we'll see, uh, seems to have walked towards populism. would be Argentina, at least, with the election of the new president.
0: Yeah, Javier Merle, we talked about his rise and his, you know, big victory in the first round of elections, where I think he got 30-something percent in a field of four or something like that. And, you know, many people said it was going to be close. He ended up winning like 56, 57 percent of the vote or something. Again, the opposition literally ran the economic minister in the midst of record inflation and just like an insane economic crisis. So I really don't know what they thought was going to happen there. I, I think almost anybody could have won. But he's pledged some pretty radical things. Of course, he is this anarcho-capitalist, super anti brics almost anti-multipolarity guy, obviously a big fan of Ukraine, a big fan of Israel, loves Israel, is himself converting to Judaism, so that's interesting. He loves cryptocurrency, so he has that in common with Nayib Bukele and perhaps will be you know joining him in some sort of you know Latin American you know, crypto union of some kind. But he also wants to abolish the Central Bank of Argentina, which I say thumbs up but then he wants to replace it with the US their currency with the US dollar which i would probably say thumbs down but interesting character i wouldn't be surprised if in the short term he definitely benefits the argentinian economy i can't imagine it could be managed any worse than it already was but at the same time i mean he literally worships israel he doesn't want he's now saying that argentina is no longer interested in joining the brics uh, he is in favor of Falkland's Argentinian sovereignty, so he wants to drive the Brits off the Falklands, which I guess, you know, in a broad civilizational sense, I also support. But at yeah, that same token, he praises Margaret Thatcher, so I don't really understand the... It was just so bad, he could kind of get away with a lot... The, the situation was just so bad, he really got away with a lot of random incoherent nonsense on the campaign trail. But, you know, that's that's Argentina for you, a country I would love to visit someday. Pretty much a European country, you know... Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay, those are, at this point, probably more European than America and Canada, by, by almost any metric, so I hope to visit those places someday, but, you know, this Malay victory comes, you know, just before uh, this Gerrit Wilders victory in the Netherlands, and this is another, you know, anti-Muslim sort of right-wing guy, you know, he lost an election, was it 2015, you know, 2017, and it was 2017, I think he lost an election pretty badly in the Netherlands for the prime ministership and now with this farmers party the PVV which you know they they're pretty populist right they've now you know stormed into parliament and it seems that Wilders is going to be the prime minister and much like Malay you know giga Zionist has the Israeli flag in his office when he's celebrating his victory so you know these victories if you can start you know reversing the issue of demographic decline and replacement in the Netherlands you know that's great And maybe we'll see, you know, maybe the Netherlands will become Eurosceptic, which would be crazy because the Netherlands is literally where, you know, right next to Brussels, it's one of those main countries where like the Hague and all of these kind of very globalist, multinational institutions meet. So if there's any kind of skepticism there, that would really be a crumble in the institutions. But Overall, these two uh, victories represent kind of the same thing. I wouldn't even be surprised if in many ways they were able to march to victory much more easily because Israel is now rallying this right-wing support. So any Jewish networks that would have been going towards perhaps going against these guys were maybe called off a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I think just uh, it's, it's quite a shame that European and even South American, we can say like uh, you know related to European politicians in the right wing do have to support Israel, even at this time in the world when it's very easy as we said multiple times, to actually be anti-Israeli to the heart, to the fullest extent, and not be painted an anti-Semite simply because what Israel has done to the Palestinian people. So there is, a, there is a, frankly, a free ticket to, I would say, not anti-Semitism, but uh, anti-Israeli, anti-Zionist positions in, in politics at the moment. So not taking that opportunity by you know, President Malay not taking this opportunity is quite a big loss for Argentina and does paint him as a very uh, questionable character, I think, in my eyes, especially in 2023 at this point, post-October 7. Now, for Mr. Wilders, I think he, he reminds, Reminds me a bit more of Andrzej Duda, maybe the president of Poland, or Viktor Orbán, you know, the Hungarian prime minister. You know, a more right-wing leader, a Ukraine skeptic, so to speak. So that's quite a good thing. But also, there are, I guess, similarities to. Um, Netanyahu, who was also like you can say, I'm not comparing him to Netanyahu the criminal, but the the pre-October Netanyahu, who a very shrewd right wing politician, he has been in politics for over two decades now, knows in uh, Dutch politics inside out. But also, in order to actually hold the Parliament of Netherlands, um, hold power, and now that he has a majority party, in terms of his party is the largest, but it doesn't hold his majority in seats. I think they only control 37 out of the 150 or so seats in the Parliament, which means to control a majority, which would be what, over just over seventy five, they do need to form a coalition, similar to Netanyahu in the Knesset of Israel. So uh, and a coalitions usually mean compromise. So how much and his party will need to compromise on these right wing, I guess you can say, somewhat conservative principles in Dutch politics will I guess we'll see. But definitely him being a ukraine skeptic in the eu the more of the more we see of that the, the happier we are because the ukraine if anything has been a complete economic dump for the entire world and essentially this massive money laundering operation now that i think the recent recent uh statistics have shown over 230 billion american dollars have been have went for ukraine in the last year and a half which is like larger than some countries entire economies at this point um and where that money has went i think is very questionable so his victory in the netherlands and him being i guess a zionist or at least the pro-israeli politician is not Surprising, but being a Ukraine skeptic, I think that's positive for the EU in general. E- the EU needs more common sense politicians such as himself in order to steer this massive economy, this economic union away from the utter disaster which for which they've been headed, I think, since
0: the COVID regime has taken place. Yeah, again, I'm I'm supportive of here. I think that this clearly just much like what's going on in Ireland, this represents the energy shift. People are have had enough. And it's really just all about orchestrating and and engineering the circumstances of these elections to where these people's voices can't even be heard. Like in Germany, they're, you know, just banning the AFD, arresting politicians because they know the moment a national election comes around and they can vote for these people, these people are going to storm into parliament and have a majority and they're going to have to pick a right-wing prime minister or chancellor. And the German federation is literally like designed to prevent that from happening. Like the German constitution has an entire enforcement wing just dedicated to like hunting down and arresting right-wing people. If they get a little too close to thinking they might be sympathetic towards, you know, mustache man. So it's it's really an unprecedented time we're living in. And again, it's just, you know, much like, you know, you read these papers about how Israel and, you know, those Jewish civilizationists fear that Israel won't last much longer than 80 years because of the historical, you know, record of Jewish states only lasting 80 years. That, of course, goes with what St. Paisio says about the eventual fall of Israel 70 to 80 years after its founding. And, of course, you could say that same thing about the entirety of post-war leftist liberal civilization. You know, it's really, what, since 1945 till now? That's how long it took for this nonsensical ideology to finally crack up. You know, it provided a lot of material wealth for those people in the West, for those victors of the Second World War. And for you know those that benefited from this kind of information age, industrialization, mass sort of financialization of society, but with it came some pretty terrible demons like you know racial replacement and multiculturalism, mass degeneracy, and of course you know falling birth rates, falling religiosity, and here we are now at the end of it, and we're seeing it start to crack up in the electoral realm, and of course in the warfare warfare realm in places like Ukraine and the Holy Land, and it seems that you know. We're here on World War Now covering the Third World War. That's exactly what it is. And whether it's people rising up in the streets and rioting or a war going on or an election, full spectrum war here. This is more than just multiple militaries fighting across multiple continents. This is like Marshall McLuhan said the Third World War is a full information war with no division between civilian and military participation.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think before we. So before we transition to the Russo-Ukrainian war and I guess the military conflict taking place there and some of the updates around Ovdzievka and Kherson Oblast and speak about just any any big news in the persecution area, we do need to mention that Ukraine has finally begun to you know to be pressured by some of its uh right-wing neighbors such such as poland so poland has secretly sanctioned some of its private truckers and farmers to begin blocking the major freeways and highways leading out of ukraine into poland and essentially they're preventing any of the ut- ukrainian goods commercial goods actually being exported out of ukraine by through this, these major roads into poland so the, the polish people are essentially striking back against ukrainian market goods flooding the european economy because they're saying look these ukrainians are not selling to russia anymore they're selling all of their goods so, so such as timber, farming goods, things like this, even some of the small manufacturing items that they do make in Ukraine. They're sending everything to us in Poland. We don't want just stuff flooding our markets. So the local farmers and uh, whoever's organising these truckers has blocked these major highways. So we're seeing a straight up civilian protest against the Ukrainians from the from the Polish angle. And naturally, blocking highways and freeways leading out of a foreign country that's uh, somewhat of a security risk. So I have to believe that the Polish government has literally given a sanction to this, and probably uh, President Duda has in fact, you know, him him and his recent disagreements with Zelensky about you know him calling for a Ukrainian-Russian troops, Zelensky rejecting it. This probably goes a long way in saying that at the moment Ukraine faces a lot of a lot of this pressure and the only way Ukraine can kind of bypass some of these Polish uh, this Polish blockade is essentially going through Transnistria and Moldova to the south. Maybe uh, changing some of these trucks over into Moldovan trucks, uh, you know, putting on Moldovan number plates, and then sending them off to the European Union. So Ukraine, not even being a functional economy uh, off the bat at the beginning of the conflict, you know, with the rife corruption happening within, is now facing even more pressure from its own allies. Now, of course, you may be wondering, like, what, what about the military aid coming into the EU? Well, military trucks as well as uh, any military aid is actually being let through by the by the people on the road. So. again, Again, this kind of leads me to think that this is in fact a Polish government scheme in order to kind of pressure Zelensky into submitting to writing down a truce between Belarus, Russia, and and itself. So with Lukashenko, frankly, being very much for a truce, Lukashenko has been speaking about a truce for the last six months. And frankly, frankly, he's been ignored by many of the politicians overseas, but I think I think that's basically where the stance is coming down to. And Moldova, naturally, you'd think, well, why would Moldova participate in this uh, somewhat fraudulent economic scheme of you know, having a backdoor for Ukraine into the EU? Well, well the Moldovan president essentially does whatever the United States tells her to do. So she's uh, uh, President Maya Sandu is, of course, a very much controlled individual. She's essentially Zelensky in a skirt. So when we do speak about you know, potential future Moldovan, uh, Russo- Moldovan Church persecutions, which may be taking place. The President of Moldova will definitely be sanctioning that. Under under the auspices of her American leadership, and I think that's essentially the interesting update economically in the Ukraine. Naturally, the economy again is is plummeting. It's it's in a huge debt deficit, and of course, with the election coming up next year, which the Ukrainian Rada needs to confirm, I believe by the twenty the twentieth or the fifteenth of December this year, they're going to state officially whether or not Ukraine will be having an election. They'll decide uh, the trajectory of the country going forward.
0: Yeah, Zelensky of course is now calling for increased mobilizations, despite. The fact that almost everybody around him is calling for ceasefires, and the U.S. at this point even wants to perhaps consider negotiations, and Lloyd Austin, I believe, is even pressuring Zelensky to hold elections. So it seems that there may be some maneuvering to get Zelensky in, or to threaten Zelensky perhaps with the threat of losing power if he doesn't come to the table in a way the United States wants. But very recently, I mean, Putin and the Russians have been touting the initials from the you know the Ukrainian negotiators in Turkey that they said that they had all these plans for peace and a ceasefire that you know it depends on Russia withdrawing their troops from around Kiev and then of course we know Boris Johnson flew in and stopped all of that from happening but the Russians are really waving this around so I don't know if that means there are going to be negotiations or I don't know if that means that they're going to make a big move and say we already tried negotiations and they're making it very clear that they really did everything they could in Turkey but it's too late if you want to stop us now and again we've made it very clear that we don't think that the current map is how it's going to be. So and as we see, Avdivka is being pushed towards that, obviously, is still changing the map. So there's heavy casualties being taken there. And of course, it's still wet. The ground hasn't frozen yet, although we're getting close to December. So it's going to start getting cold pretty soon.
1: Yeah, the Avdivka assault is very interesting because it's, it's essentially following the model of Soledar more so than Bakhmut. And essentially, this is just kind of what we saw in Mariupol, where proper siege warfare, where a city or a town needs to be fully surrounded before forces can finally close in and actually take it. This is what we saw in World War II when the, the Third Reich was invading the Soviet Union during the Operation Barbarossa. What they did was they surrounded Kiev completely. They surrounded Kharkov completely before they moved on. And you know those surrounds led to the capitulation and the surrender of the garrisons within the cities themselves. So this is what's essentially happening in Avdivka. But the Ukrainians are defending very heavily. Naturally, they have Mars and all all kinds of long-range artillery rockets bombarding uh, large conglomerations of Russian troops. So when the Russians are performing this round, the surround around of Divka, they're doing that in small groups. So it's reported that only the Russians are only conglomerating groups of perhaps 10 to 30 people at most, because as soon as you have 100 people encamped in one particular area over, over the night, you're going to get bombed. So it's it's a lot easier to spot. So the Russians, in fact, are and Ukrainians, by the way, are acting in the same fashion. There are no like large groups of Ukrainians clogged together because Russian artillery will simply target those positions. So in, in fact, the warfare is very, very different to what we see perhaps even in Israel, where there isn't that threat of long-range artillery and the Palestinians are very much underrepresented in terms of armaments. Here, it's more or less the sides are somewhat even. And the Ukrainians are definitely getting surrounded. So Avdivka, again, it's looking very good for Russia. It's we're not quite sure exactly how Ukraine will recover from the loss of this second city following Bakhmut in the span of 2023, right before the closing closing of the year. Because at this point, the Russians are already entering into the eastern sections of the of Divka town, and in fact, the city will most likely fall before Christmas, I'd say. And, and that's quite positive. Now, nevertheless, we do have to like just remind ourselves, like we can't just say that all of the, the entire Donetsk Oblast is finally free from Ukrainian. Uh, Ukrainian Azov Battalion and all these other neo-Nazi weird occult groups and things like that and Ukrainian liberals because again next to we have Konstantinovka further northwest you have cities like Kramatorsk and of course, Slavyansk, and moving on to Izum, which the Ukrainians, like cities like Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, the Ukrainians have been building these small towns and cities up into fortresses. So they're gonna be even harder to take than Avdiivka and Bakhmut in the future. It's not looking easy for the Russian forces, unless of course, um, there's more decisive action going into the post-winter period next year in 2024, maybe around the time of the Ukrainian-Russian election, perhaps, so I mean, we're looking for the entire of the Oblast to actually be free from Ukrainian influence. And speaking of Ukrainian influence and it being shut down right, kind of is what we're seeing in Kherson. actually very positive development. We spoke about Kherson a few weeks ago when we stated that the governor of Kherson announced that there's going to be curfews after 8, 8, 8, 8, 8 p.m., that the Ukrainians have crossed the Dnieper River in large numbers. And they're actually, they've taken one or two villages on the Russian side of the Kerasan Oblast, on the sort of eastern side of the Dnieper. Finally, those Ukrainian encroachments have been somewhat stifled. They've been frozen in place. Russians are bombarding Ukrainian positions. The Ukrainians are not moving forward. So in fact, this has been one of the positive developments for Russia besides of is that Ukraine has not taken any... Further steps forward in this uh, Kyrgyzstan offensive. So, again, complete failure across the board. And perhaps people like Zaluzny or maybe Alexander Sirsky, some of these big military generals in Ukraine, who Sirsky and Zaluzhny are not friends, but they maybe do see what's happening in Ukraine under Zelensky's leadership. Maybe they'll stand up and actually form some sort of coalition of opposition, perhaps, to his absolutely reckless behavior here. And, you know, it's most likely looking to be to, to go there. I think what, what we'll see next year, I think, around the election will essentially cement this further Ukrainian-Russian uh, conflict going forward a few years.
0: And unfortunately, we're finally seeing Russia deploying cluster munitions en masse. Of course, the Ukrainians did this first, and now the Russians are you know, responding in kind. And it's just the brutality. is just, just awful. Like, we really just need this to, to wrap up as soon as possible. And of course, as much as we need that to wrap up as soon as possible, we need it to wrap up as soon as possible with maximal Russian gains, because the persecution in the church also continues. And again, you talked about the Transnistria issue last week. We talked about the Moldova schism issue as well. And it just seems that just as Zelensky, despite calls to negotiate, is going to sacrifice every single Ukrainian man and even some women that are now being sent to the front lines to, to save his, his situation. So, too, are the authorities going to continue to persecute the canonical church and continue to persecute metropolitans like Metropolitan Long and Metropolitan Jonathan, these other bishops and these monastics that they have been terrorizing and these people that they've been preventing from receiving communion? Like, imagine if you're in one of these places and all the churches are getting shut down and the monastery is getting stormed and you have to pay to get in. Some of these people are literally being deprived of communion. And it's it, this is, I can only imagine the amount of saintly stories that are being written and, and, and made that. In the future, we'll be able to tell our children about how faithful believers, you know, maintained and persevered in the midst of all of this. But unfortunately, you know, it doesn't bode well for Ukraine and the Ukrainians fighting on the front lines.
1: Yeah, perhaps the most explicit assault on the Orthodox Church this week was seen in the long-suffering city of Cherkasyu in central Ukraine, which we keep talking about. It's a Quite close to Kiev on the Dnieper River, and then Orthodox monastery there, uh, belonging, you know, named after the Nativity of the Theotokos, was actually raided. And this raid was almost caught on camera. It was raided in the late afternoon, so it was still in the daytime. A lot of it was visible. Over 150 armed Ukrainian men siege the monastery. The abbot of the monastery, Father Sergius Pashenko, his lower jaw was completely broken. He was taken to hospital, most likely just uh, you know hit by the butt of a gun or something like that. Perhaps just beaten by these uh, people who seem a lot of them seem to have belonged to the Azov Battalion actually. The infamous neo-Nazi pagan battalion, which has formed in Ukraine under the auspices of the Talmudic uh, Kolomoisky all those years ago, it's still active. So they're still persecuting Orthodox Christians. And this monastery, like again, a large monastery, different in a completely different diocese, almost you know hundreds of kilometers away from the Bunchen monastery we discussed a week ago. So it's almost like you don't even know if your parish, as you're in, standing in during the service, will be completely raided by armed troops. And these troops usually come with several members of the schismatic Orthodox Church, which simply welcomed the altar and they take the anti-mints right off the altar table as well so they're after the relics the miracle working icons and the anti-mints collapse which i mean clergymen listening to this may find this slightly absurd like you'd never think the anti-mints is a a thing of i guess uh, a thing somebody would even think of stealing but in fact in ukraine that's what we're seeing is every time a monastery is raided they're grabbing the anti-mints off the altar table so they could perform their false liturgies upon it in the future it's just very bizarre and um, somewhat heretical like somewhat anti-christ driven yeah naturally and just yesterday again in in the town of Barzanyaki, northwest of the infamous Butcher town, which, you know, which we spoke about, the, the massacre that took place. It's just 30 kilometers outside of Kiev. An Orthodox Church of Archangel Michael was raided at night during a Vespers service. This just happened last night on the 23rd of November. Ukrainian schismatics, as well as armed Ukrainian soldiers, just waltzed into this uh, church during this Vespers service and essentially captured it, kicked all the faithful outside. So, again, it's happening in central Ukraine. This is not on some. This is not in, next to Dvorov or somewhere in the outskirts. It's just around Kiev. And uh, again, the faithful don't really know which church will be hit next and schismatics are usually accompanying these armed members of the ukrainian military and they're taking these churches over uh, you know it's completely illegal seizure of property things like this yeah so another i guess unfortunate story is another archpriest, Dmitry. Dmitry Tikhov was arrested by Ukrainian authorities and because of his posts on social media on VK, the Russian version of Facebook, he was posting allegedly uh, pro-Russian things, you know, so to speak, and he was completely arrested. He's facing up to 5 years in prison at this point. Um already the the initial he- hearing trials have taken place, so he's and you know, the negative side of this story, right? And this is uh, like again this is uh, somewhat controversial, but his particular diocese that he was in was actually very pro-Ukrainian. So the Vinyitsa diocese was to the point pro-Ukrainian that when Russia actually began this special military operation, his entire diocese published on their website that they support the Ukrainian army and they support the Ukrainian state in defending itself against the Russian occupiers and the Russian invaders. So that's well and good. Well, this priest allegedly didn't want to give any sermons which were pro-Ukrainian. And so he was actually kicked out of his Archangel Michael parish, different Archangel Michael church than the one that we mentioned earlier, but he was ousted. And he was sent into forced retirement. So he was posting these things as a priest, you know, recently forced into retirement by his own diocese, I guess you can say political administration. And now he's been, you know, now he's going to prison and his own diocese again on the 22nd of November published that this father, Archbishop, uh, sorry, Archpriest Dimitri did not belong to them anymore. And none of his comments can reflect on anything the diocese has posted. So we see brother turn against brother here. We see people belonging to the same church, sort of neglecting one another. And this is, again, it's it's tearing apart local communities as well as from, from our perspective, you know, from abroad of Ukraine, it does look completely savage as to what's happening over there, but it does paint a very gruesome, picture and yeah that's that's essentially what's happening at, at least at the moment so every week there seems to be like more tragedies more tragic stories from ukraine coming out you know the most and the most explicit one is still building like this is this hasn't actually taken place yet but we have received an update like I, again it's almost like the antichrist the antichrist the ukrainian government is pushing forward and forward with this persecution the ministry of culture of ukraine has issued an official statement which explained that it will respect the relics of the saints in the kiev-pechersk but they are objects belonging to the National Museum, and the museum is called the Kiev Pechersk Lavra, including the caves, and all of these relics will undergo an intense and scrupulous review. Okay, so we're talking about, and apparently they've claimed, we're going, we've already commissioned a group of experts and investigators who will begin work on the relics of Ukraine's oldest monastery very shortly. So again they've officially announced this. It's no, it's no longer like a a theory. The persecution will reach Bolshevik type levels quite soon, I think. It's quite, uh, definitely very negative. And I think uh, a lot of the people, Ukrainians as well as Russians and all Orthodox people around the world are quite shocked. We're getting to the stage where relics are going to be taken out of their sarcophagi and out of their resting places and tested in laboratories by experts
0: who probably don't even belong to the Christian faith. We're always praying for the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and everyone should keep that up. And I hope that their plight can be coming to an end sooner rather than later. But in more positive, I guess, international news as we move on, of course, we see the president of Cyprus coming out strongly in favor of Serbia and the Kosovo situation. This is the president of Cyprus, Nikos Christodoulides. Great name. He said, Cyprus' position regarding the non-recognition of Kosovo is clear and cannot be changed. I want to publicly reiterate that our support for the efforts of the Serbian government and our position on the Kosovo issue in Cyprus is clear. Our position cannot be changed. So obviously cyprus has a reason to not recognize kosovo as if kosovo gets recognized by more and more countries it sets precedent for the possible future recognition of northern cyprus as a potential you know country in the united nations that has diplomatic relations and is you know has a government that's recognized around the world there was rumor that azerbaijan was going to go on and recognize northern cyprus but then of course literally i think right after we reported that uh, Hamas did the whole October 7th thing. So I think Azerbaijan had more important things to worry about, like supplying, like supplying energy to Israel and dealing with the whole Armenia situation where we see Pashinyan now, despite after completely shunning Russia and turning to the West, is now saying, we want Russia's influence in, you know this future thing. And of course, as far as I'm aware, the Azeri army has actually maintained alertness and maintained a lot of their mobilization. So there have been rumors that perhaps Azerbaijan is ready to move even deeper into Armenia and that they've been given you know, some guarantees or perhaps Turkey has talked to them and maybe they even want to secure a lot of the Armenian panhandle and completely connect to their Naqshivan exclave and thus fully connect to Turkey in a super easy way. So we, we see how these are all connected there, but Cyprus, you know, not a lot of base things coming out of the government of Cyprus, but this is one of them.
1: Yeah, again, paying close attention to Cyprus, not just because, you know, one of our favorite modern hierarchs, Metropolitan of of Morphu, Neophytos, lives there and, of course, uh, administrates and provides missionary work there to the local Turkish and Greek populations, but also because Cyprus is one of those few places and jurisdictions, one of those few countries that will eventually, I think, will be the first out of all the Greek jurisdictions of the Orthodox Church, which will turn against this new New World Order type agenda forced forward by the Ecumenical Patriarchate and will, again, seek to mend the schism between what you may call the uh, the Slavic Orthodox world and the Greek Orthodox world, of course, notwithstanding Antioch and Jerusalem not involved in this, but Cyprus is one of those countries which is right on the border, and it could actually force its opinion upon the rest of these uh, Orthodox jurisdictions. I think that's very important. Naturally, the country has has a huge part to play and i guess not just the russo turkish relations but also Gre- greco turkish relations being essentially you can say the front line between these two civilizations both europe and and turkey uh, so in the middle east there so definitely it has uh, it will be involved very heavily in some of these future events
0: well it's true and of course we've talked about the unfortunate current situation in cyprus where most of the hierarchs have tacitly or explicitly recognize the schismatics but you know the current bishop and metropolitan of paphos who in many traditions usually becomes the patriarch becomes the archbishop the patriarch of cyprus he has now despite his spiritual father being archbishop georgios of cyprus he has refused to concelebrate with him since his election and has completely rejected the ukrainian schismatics so there's a lot of holiness on cyprus and even in further Interesting good news, on the Greek bishop front, the Greek government appears to have written the fanar saying that they're done with Elpidophoros, basically saying he should be removed, and I found this was very interesting, and there was basically a letter that said that the Greek government expresses discontent with Archbishop Elpidophoros' direction, urging the patriarch to take corrective measures, and I don't know if the, of course people are excited, people think this has something to do with being based, although as far as I'm aware... This probably has more to do with, for example, Senator Bob Menendez was recently put under investigation and possibly going to go to jail for being a Turkish asset, basically, being a Turkish foreign agent in some regard. And we all know that all of the members of the FNAR that want to become Patriarch of Constantinople, they have to be Turkish citizens if they want to be considered. And in the midst of all this Israel-Palestine stuff... Turkey has come out staunchly against Israel. The embassies have been removed from both sides. Erdogan has come out fully in support of Hamas. And I think, again, not that I'm bemoaning El getting in hot water here, but... Unfortunately, I don't know if this is the Greek government being based and the uh, the American powers and Goarch, you know, coming around as opposed to them just no longer protecting what, I guess, Israelis behind the scenes might view as a potential Turkish asset because I'm sure Elpidifotos probably talks to Erdogan more than he talks to Netanyahu, even though, you know, <laughs> he may do some things that, you know, certain Talmudic people may like. He is quite literally a Turkish citizen probably with his phone ta- phones tapped by certain elements, whether it's in the United States or not. So obviously... Unfortunately, it seems that this is more anti-Turkish-Israeli actions perhaps happening. Although I'm sure the Greeks are also tired of the nonsense like the gay baptism and Elpidophoros's constant, you know, weird liberalism. Yeah,
1: I want to mention just that one agency which ties this entire not altogether, Zelensky, Elpidophoros, El Perpetriac Bartholomew, um, and even possibly visiting uh, the Turkish government again, we see the director of the CIA William Burns on the 16th of November. The reason why the news is only coming out so late is because there isn't there was no press conference, there was no explanation why the director of the CIA suddenly, since this first visit since January, has surprisingly visited Kiev on the what only seems to be the the 10-year anniversary of the Maidan Revolution, but he probably privately met with Zelensky. They could have discussed church politics as well. We have to keep this in mind. The CIA essentially runs the entire schism agenda here. So Mr. William Burns visits Kiev and then suddenly, without any media coverage. One day later, travels all the way back to Turkey. And, you know, we've seen former directors of the CIA meet with some of these clergymen in very suspicious circumstances, both in the FNAR and in Greece. Unfortunately, it's, uh, it's quite an interesting knot. But yeah, that's probably the one coincidence, which, you know, again, what the CIA director was discussing with Zelensky could have been related to the church, maybe somewhat. I do think, in terms of like some of the briefings that they're given, I think they do see the Orthodox Church in general as this as this enemy of the particular culture war and this uh, global plan that they're pushing forward. So I do think we're definitely uh, in the crosshairs of some of these free letter agencies as well as uh, you know world globalist structures.
0: Yeah, I mean the world is is really getting shaken up, and every aspect of society is getting dragged into it. Religious figures, political figures cultural commentators we got mma fighters conor mcgregor leading the charge against mass migration into ireland we had i mean I remember nikki minaj was talking about her cousin's like scrotum or something in the vaccine and how no one should get it like wherever it's full again like i said total information war full spectrum dominance there's no dis there's no yeah kanye west you know literally starting the great noticing and now it extending to elon musk the richest man in the world like none of these people have anything in common except you know, I guess we're all made in the image of God. So it's, uh, we're all, you know, on this, we're all fellow travelers on this journey. And I know communists call each other fellow travelers, but I think it makes more sense now for noticers, as they say, to use that phrase. But, you know, I guess to end some things out, just to finish out the World War Now loop, uh, Essequibo, the Guyana-Venezuela situation continues to heat up. Of course, the president of Guyana went to Essequibo, raised the Guyanese flag in the visible border of Venezuela. So they're making a stand while at the same time. Nicolas Maduro is saying, we we're in a national union for the recovery of Guyana. He didn't even say Esekibo. I think he just said Guyana. So he's just like, yeah, we are trying to take two-thirds of your country. And, and it all, of course, goes back to the offshore rights, where if you get two-thirds of Guyana, you get a huge amount of access to the offshore oil and shale field for liquid natural gas and all sorts of other natural resources, which are basically the largest deposits in the Western Hemisphere, of course, Saudi Arabia and the Persian Gulf. Is where a lot of that's focused in the Eastern Hemisphere, but in the West, it's all about the Lower Caribbean and the Venezuelan Guyanese coast. So big, big moves in the energy war.
1: Yeah, and on, on another front, you can say the largest country in Southeast Asia at this moment, all, notwithstanding Indonesia, Myanmar, the conflict continues. The junta is, well, the junta as in the modern myanmar government which has been in power since february 2021 so kind of amidst covid they came to power and largely they it's claimed that they're backed by china but at the moment they're kind of running thin essentially it's a there's a free-pronged attack as we mentioned last week that's trying to push this government out of power and the attack seems to be coming from as you just stated the some a communist opposition from three different directions you have uh what's called a, a free brotherhood alliance composed of local militias one of them is called the arakan army the second one the myanmar national democratic Alliance Army and the Tangang National Liberation Army. All three have very vivid communist imagery in some of their flags. Somewhat, some of them mimicking mimicking Russia and the Soviet Union. Some other imagery mimicking China. So it does appear like Myanmar is again suffering from this, uh, from just being again in the forefront of this post-colonial politics around the world, and naturally being. Stuck between these two great superpowers, India and China, and you know, notwithstanding possibly American influence as well. Again, it's not really said if China is supporting some of these rebels who are fighting against the new junta government, but it is saying that China has made you know, a lot of these Western media sources are claiming that China made the wrong bet by backing the current national Myanmar army against some of these rebels. But it does seem like the overall army of the rebels against the Myanmar government is amassed to somewhere close to 80,000 troops, so probably the size of Hezbollah at this point. So it's quite a substantial number. And they've, over the last week, they've captured over 150 military outposts and small sort of bases around Myanmar, around the jungles and mountains. So the entire country is ablaze in war. And we're just not hearing about it because, frankly, the people of Myanmar, there's over 50 million of them, they're they're living in extreme poverty and probably not many of them have internet access. So unlike the Gaza-Palestinian conflict, this is not getting much coverage. But again, second largest or the first largest country in Southeast Asia, and it's currently in complete... Like essentially, it's uh, almost like a Russian-style civil war with whites and reds on two sides just fighting it. And, and as we've seen in these Southeast Asian wars, right, you know, like the Vietnam War, what uh, took place during the Khmer Rouge regime, these conflicts become very, very bloody quite quickly. And again, there's no facilities to house you know, POWs of war. Prisoners of war, any, any prisoners of any kind. So what we're going to see is probably uh, really tragic news coming out of that region at the moment. And it's heating up to a large extent. China doesn't seem interested at all, essentially not commenting on the fact that you know, Myanmar is essentially one of its largest border countries uh, in the Southwest. But again, really tragic. And we'll probably hear more about refugees coming out of Myanmar very shortly.
0: I mean, from an American perspective, Myanmar is probably top five most esoteric countries. Almost nobody in Myanmar speaks English. They receive almost no English language media. It's not even because they're like a dictatorship per se. It's just like their language is so far off from like American languages, you know, more in the like Thai Cambodian family, but it has this crazy alphabet. So much like we talk about how Georgians are kind of insulated from globalist English language, you know, G-A-E-Rot, it's kind of the same with Myanmar. And I remember back when 2021, when all that was going down, I tweeted out on a different account of mine. Actually, no, well, a friend of mine rather tweeted out on an account of theirs that uh, they support the Burmese Myanmar military junta and they were then immediately banned so you know people have been coming for the Tatmadaw which is the technical name for the Myanmar military they've been they've had shooters out for them for since day one so I'm a big supporter personally I'm a a Myanmar junta respecter so I hope they can I hope they can take down this, this 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 alliance and you know imprison the organizers and restore order in in the great nation of Myanmar But as we uh, kinda end up the show here, I think again the world is whether it's these Irish riots, whether it's Derek Chauvin, whether it's, you know, what's going on in Myanmar, whether it's of course obviously the stuff going on in Gaza. But the Third World War is here. I just don't think that our thesis is is disputable at this point. I don't know anybody who could seriously come on and be like, Oh, you you have no idea what you're talking about. None of these things came true. You know, none of none of this has anything to do with, with reality. Like your spiritual analysis is is disconnected so I think that in the midst of all of these horrible things be sure to remain prayerful and remain you know remain steadfast because in many ways you know those saints that came before us have have given us their warnings and their words to to encourage us through these times and I know that a lot of people whether they see people getting stabbed in Ireland or whether they see you know someone like Derek Chauvin getting stabbed in prison and realizing you know the situation in America and seeing of course the support for the genocide in in Israel, you know, don't, don't grow too disdainful, you know, don't grow to hate your country or anything. We just had the the Thanksgiving episode, so be sure to remain grateful for, you know, the blessings and things that that God has given us. And, you know, we're going to continue to report the news and report everything. But yeah, unless you have anything else to wrap this up with, Dimitri, I have one or two maybe news items. We saw the, we're seeing Chabad tanks now deployed in the, uh, in the Gaza Strip. That was, that was interesting. Interesting,
1: yeah. The the flag of uh, Rabbi Schneerson is being flown over, just like the flag of Christ is flown over in the Ukraine by the Russian forces. The flag of the Son of God. They're flying the flag of a you know Rabbi in in Israel very interesting it's like we're building up towards Armageddon here aren't we like really end time type conflict where one side supports literal demons and sort of their harbingers and the other side supports the son of god and uh you know Christ's army of angels as we saw the other news story which i wanted to mention was one of the first footages of russian troops actually praying on the front lines near Obzhevka a russian squad of russian squad named the Memrids actually, the commander walks out in this particular clip. We published it on uh, our Telegram and X Twitter page. You can see the commander walks out and he asks all his troops to get down on one knee. And these Russian soldiers, they're standing in this uh, small bush, this, this small sort of forest. You can hear explosions around them. And they get it down on one knee and they say the prayer to the opt elders, which, you know, the morning prayer of the Optina elders. You can search it up. It's a prayer I personally know off by heart because I've just been repeating it for years now. But funny enough, they do say that prayer and coincidentally, and then they pray for Hurricane they pray to Archangel Michael and they pray for the that the lord protects them from the coming battle and they pick up their gear reload their weapons and they go into combat so we do see like almost like a medieval type scenario you, you hear about Dmitri donskoy alexander nevsky some of these serbian saints uh prince lazarus before the battle of kosovo these legends are coming back to life with the flag of christ flying above them and uh yeah just like the forces of the antichrist the gathering maybe in the middle east or overseas somewhere so are the forces of christianity again rising up to the forefront catechizing themselves learning these prayers collectively Saying them on the front lines before going into battle. I think it's just a very uh, positive sight. And just to kind of wrap it up again, mentioning the saints, right, you, we, that we speak about all the time, and me and Conrad, you know, we cite them with, you know, belief that their words actually meant something. Our our statements on World War now were completely backed up, and we by none other than the metropolitan of Crimea himself, Tikhon, President Putin's former confessor and probably the second most popular bishop in all of Russia after the Patriarch. In his recent press conference on RIA News on the 22nd of November, he stated that the conflict in Russia and Ukraine and the conflict around the world this coming World War III was prophesized by Ukrainian elders and saints who we, Ming-Conrad, mention all the time, Elder Jonah of Odessa, Elder Zasimov of Donetsk, and St. Lawrence of Chernigov, who has already been canonized in the church. So those three names who we've talked about for many weeks on end, suddenly Metropolitan Tikhon again, just reiterates states, all three of them, talks about their prophecies. So again, what we're covering here is uh, may not seem like mainstream news, may seem like somewhat fringe opinions of religious zealots, but no, in Russia, this is what's happening. In in Europe, even the globalists are aware of these things taking place. They're aware of these prophecies as much as we are. And uh, you know this is just further evidence, evidence that going forward, the world will become a more spiritual place, whether or not you believe in God and the Holy Trinity and the Holy Nicene Creed or whether or not you're waiting for the Moshiach or, you know, for those forces of Satan that are kind of pushing their agenda in the Middle East. I think we're kind of coming to this eventual clash, I think, which we'll see
0: towards the eschatological end. Of course, we have to stay vigilant and prayerful, but at the same time, we're seeing a spirit of sort of wholesome, you know, wholesome adventurism returning. Of course, we're glad that Lord Miles obviously survived the Afghanistan debacle And we see the Houthis, of course, you know, in their adventurous nature, taking this ship. And we, of course, have Gabriel de who, despite being a descendant of an emperor and, you know, at this point, possibly being a high-profile figure, possibly in the Russian, you know, monarchist movement, he shuffles somewhere between being interviewed on Aria and the about operational situations and then driving a recovered truck with a wrench handle because the steering wheel isn't working anymore so this sort of you know we're returning to the age of uh, adventure kings and you know you know emperors traveling the land and whatnot so this is this is but a good sign despite the fact that we're having to wade through some some terrible times and some mass death to to emerge into this multipolar i guess re-enchanted world i guess this is the kind of thing that it takes for god to to wake the human race up and of course we learned that exact lesson from the old and new testaments right so we shouldn't be surprised but dimitri of any last words of course worldwornow.substack.com be sure to find us there that's where you can find everything our articles be sure to subscribe to ether hour we've got some fantastic content there recently thanksgiving special episode as well as our previous episode with anthony of westgate really going into the recent noticing which is such a big element of world war three as well it really can't be overstated on the we, of course, talk about the energy wars, the actual war on the ground, the spiritual war. And, of course, part of that spiritual war is this this big noticing going on, of course. And, obviously, World War Now underscore on Twitter, we've been really blowing up there. So, follow the Twitter page. It's one of the best, most informative, I think, best platforms. Elon's doing a great job. So, Twitter and X, get on there if you're not already. Get Twitter blue, frankly. Subscribe. It's It's supportive. It helps the platform stay independent. And it will, the more people sign up, the less... Elon will be forced to entertain Jonathan Greenblatt's phone calls from the Anti-Defamation League, which we know he doesn't want to answer. He made it pretty clear that he gets it, but unfortunately, he has shareholders and he, not shareholders, rather he has capital and investors and board members and things he has to deal with. But in despite of all of that, there's World War Now on Rumble as well. Follow us on YouTube, World War Now. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now underscore the Telegram is you know, a very good place. We're never going to be banned on Telegram, so check us out there. Follow me on Twitter at Rad, Follow Dimitri at OCanonist. And with that, Dimitri, I'll leave you with the last words. I just want to thank all of our supporters,
1: uh subscribers to the Substack who look for our content, you know, on a weekly basis and we try to release it naturally for you guys and they're definitely all the all the Orthodox Christians who are listening at the moment praying for us, including uh, fathers of the church, clergymen, we do appreciate your prayers and you know we take it very humbly and we appreciate the support very much. I did want to mention we will be opening up, I think, a QA thread very shortly on the World War Now Substack. So definitely Google World War Now Substack and enter. You can have a free trial, subscribe if you'd like for the first time and don't Existing subscribers, you can ask us any question you'd like. It could be on a church issue, it could be on an issue of geopolitics, conspiracy. Maybe um, it can get as spicy as you'd want, frankly. But me and Conrad will try to filter out some of those questions and sort of arrange them in order and then answer them on a future A for Hour premium episode. So again, it's could it could cover subjects which me and Conrad frankly don't discuss on these average World War Now episodes because you know we, we do cover contemporary news so heavily that it's hard to actually sneak in, say, our opinion on some historical event or possibly a conspiracy theory of some sort or you know some of these other books that we've read recently. So we do look forward to some of your answers and questions in the Q&A. So we'll be opening that thread up very shortly for you guys. Thank you. God bless everybody.